We want to welcome you to the Reformed Informants. This is a podcast devoted to biblical exposition, systematic theology, and practical application for the good of the church. I'm Lance Burroughs, along with TJ Darty, and we are the Reformed Informants. Man, it looks like you uh, looks like you got a little delivery over there. Look at this! Finally got them in. Got the Reformed Informants gear. Got the shirts on. Uh, yours. So I got mine. What Saturday afternoon? Just so pumped. Uh, opened up. Chloe's got her hoodie. She's wearing that around the house, feeling good. I was a, I was really excited all day, rocking this shirt, ready to record here on this Monday afternoon logged in it just couldn't wait for you to see my shirt and lo and behold you're rocking one too and literally 10 minutes before we opened up zoom and squad and 10 minutes before we were about to hit record the mail came did and you say that was god's providence yeah this is obviously superintended here <laughs> but i was actually watching from the front window how bad is that and i uh, saw him take the package out of the car. (laughs) Here's all right. Here's what I see. All right. I see you front window binoculars on Roz perched up right next to you. You guys are just hawking that, that, that delivery guy. And when he walks up, like you, I just see just like salivating, you know, it's, it's time. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it, man. So we'll get some pics up on uh, social media here soon. If you're watching on YouTube, you can order these on our website. I think TJ has on the graphite, the graphite gray shirt. I've got on yep. the mustard yellow. Yeah. Man, it's it's a good they're, day. They're comfortable. They look good. They're high quality. Um, they're cheap. Man, they're not expensive. Uh, so if if you're a regular listener of the podcast, how awesome would it be just for us if you're if you del- if you ordered one of these shirts, you you uh, shouted this out on social media, took a picture with it, tagged us in it so we can see you uh, representing us. That would just be so cool for us. We're uh, we're kind of geeks like that. We just love we love to know who's listening, um, who's being encouraged by by the content. So um, if nothing else, man, like it's just a nice quality T-shirt. So go and get you one. Yeah. And if uh, your gear hasn't come in, I want to give you TJ's email and his home phone number and let you. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. That goes both right, ways. Um, so we took a week off from our, uh, Christology study. I'm going to kick it back to you just to, uh, kind of pick everybody back up to speed, um, w- with where we're at in, uh, Christology. Yeah. So, um, you know, of course we, we talked two weeks ago, uh, we introduced Christology and we kind of made the comment, um, that this could last all summer and in prepping for this episode and kind of a conversation we had beforehand, uh, it's very clear how easy that can be because there's just so much content to, to discover and to, to walk through, but also we don't need to be in a hurry, uh, because we want to make sure we get Christ right. We want to get the person and the work of Jesus correct. And so, uh, that's what we did that first episode. We just kind of previewed what's to come. And we talked about how Jesus is the grand distinction of Christianity. And we looked at, um, how, uh, other systematic theologians, how church historians, how those who have, uh, even those outside the faith have considered and examined the importance of understanding who Jesus is and uh, what Jesus has done and his role within Christianity. And so uh, that was kind of the kind of wetting the appetite. Like I think you used the the analogy of we were just in the layup line, you know, to, maybe we're on the on the driving range, taking some swings uh, in the bullpen, warming up, and just kind of getting ourselves uh, prepared for the conversations that would follow. And that we also included a conversation about some of the. 
um, some of the distortions of, of the person and the work of Christ and how easy it is to kind of veer off path. And so I think in doing that, we uh, set the stage for us to have the conversations that will follow. And so uh, with that being said, we, we've outlined a uh, quite a few. We're not even sure how many it's going to take to get through, but we want to make sure that we're going with with a pace that allows us to understand um, and to be clear on this subject. And so, uh, of course, last week we stopped to try to address the uh, issues of the day. Um, but Lance, like you know, we could do that every single week. There's just stuff going on every single week. But I'm thankful, um, even though those things might be pressing, I'm thankful to just open up the, the un and the unchanging, the unerring word of God, and just to consider some of these great, uh, these great doctrines of the faith. So, uh, with that in mind, man, where are we going today? That's kind of where we've been. We, we, you know, if if you missed that previous episode, go back and listen to that because, uh, I also recap some of the other doctrines that we covered up to this point. I don't want to do that again now, but uh, with that in mind, we kind of introduced, where do we begin Lance and, and, and walking through a a doctrine of Jesus, uh, the doctrine of Christ. Yeah. First off, you've, you've got to quit flexing over there in that shirt, man. Gosh, <laughs> hey, I'm going to need to go get some protein and creatine and try no, and catch man. up. <laughs> you, just, you just, all you got to do is use special order, extra large shirt, medium sleeves. It just, you know, just, it really, really enunciates the, you know, the biceps there. No, man. Thanks for, uh, uh, that review on, on the last, uh, two episodes that we have released. Um, and getting our mind and, and our heart situated for uh, where we want to go here with episode number 45. Uh, this is Christology Part 2, The Pre-Existence and the Distinction of Christ. Um, so today we want to focus on the Scripture's teaching specifically that Jesus pre-existed before the Incarnation, Okay, that Jesus is indeed the second member of the Trinity, he is eternal, and he existed before um, before the incarnation. Okay, so you're you're making the case by you. I mean, we we're making the case in this episode. Um, and and by the way, let me also mention this. You and I have talked about this. There's going to be overlap uh, in some of these conversations. You can't talk about. Um, the person of Christ without talking about the divinity, without talking about the humanity, but we also can't talk about the the deity or the divinity of Christ without also mentioning the pre-existence. And you can't talk about pre-existence without talking about the work of Christ. And so there's going to be overlap. But just to kind of give us a, a, a focus for this for this discussion in particular, what we want to discuss today is the eternal existence of Christ in eternity past. So we're we're essentially saying that Jesus did not show up on the scene in Matthew chapter one, we're saying Jesus has been on the scene before the scene was even created. Right. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to see if that's what the scriptures actually teach. Was Jesus in existence before Genesis chapter one, uh, verse one? And then I think that's one of the objectives and one of the goals uh, with this episode is that we we want to do theology. Now, of course, as TJ and I sat down to uh, plan out this guide, plan out this episode, and we hit the record button. We we are fully convinced, uh, not because of conversations we've had, but we are fully convinced that Jesus is, or was rather, a pre-existing in eternity past, based on uh, the Old and New Testament scriptures. And in other words, again, this isn't something that we have concocted in our own minds and thought, "Hey, let's just hit record and record an episode on this." No, we built the foundation. We built our convictions through the Word and the power of the Holy Spirit. So, 
we want to show how you would practically come to this conclusion um, mm-hmm. throughout this episode. Yeah, and I, I think that um, <clears throat> for those of us who grew up in the church, even Lance, I know you grew up exposed to the teachings of the church, even though your conversion may not have come until later, but you were at least exposed to biblical thought. For myself, I grew up in the church. So I, I just remember, um, I don't really remember learning this necessarily. I just remember like, hey, Jesus is God. You know, so like you just, you kind of learn some of those things ahead of time and you assume them because you trust the people who told you that. And then it just kind of goes un- without really, I think we discussed this in our episode on the Trinity. The, lots of times in the at the local church level, this is not really discussed. It's just assumed. Um, okay, God exists as three persons, uh, one being. But how do you build this? How do you defend this uh, from the scriptures? And the best way to think about this is how would you have a conversation with somebody of a different faith or somebody who is atheistic? How would you actually? So this is apologetic in a sense. How do we defend this claim? Because most of our listeners, like you just said, Lance, like most of our listeners are not denying this. Uh, we've we've got faithful listeners who would say, "Yeah, Jesus is eternally God." Next, next question. But we want to slow down and say, how do we get to that point? So I think that that lends to your uh, conversation here. The part of the objective is we want to do theology. We want to examine the scriptures and be able to build a a doctrine of Christ and answer this question adequately. Um, and then in addition to that, I think we want to ask the the question: um, How does this uh, coming from the scriptures? How does uh, the eternal existence of Christ, how does that relate to the Trinity, um, as, as we've discussed before? But then uh, also, how do we apply this to ourselves today? What does this matter? Why are we doing this theology today? So I think that kind of lays out our goal and our aim for this episode. Fair to say? Man, that's good. I've got nothing to add to that as usual. So let's, <laughs> so let's, you uh, set yourself up for that, all right? <laughs> yeah, let me just repeat what TJ said real quick. All right, keep, now let's, keep let's, rolling. Take us through this. Yeah, let's talk about a definition, a definition for the pre-existence of Christ. Basically, all we are saying is that the second member of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, existed in full deity before the incarnation. Okay, so we're not arguing that, yes, Jesus existed before creation. However, he is less than God. We are arguing that Jesus existed before the creation of the world eternally, and he is equal to God. Okay, he's, he's the second member of the Trinity, the triune God that we've talked about on the previous episode. When you say, let me let me just leave no stone unturned here, can you define and unpack a little bit what you mean by the incarnation, just in case somebody doesn't recognize that? So you, you we're making the case that uh, Jesus existed in his deity before the incarnation. What's that word, incarnation? Yeah, the incarnation deals with the uh, virgin conception and birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, as recorded in um, Matthew chapter 1. Uh, Luke chapters 1 through 3, we're talking about when uh, God the Son uh, took on human flesh, Philippians chapter 2, that you'll be preaching through uh, Mm -hmm. uh, soon, that God took on human flesh and became a man. He actually lived as a man in this world. That's what we mean by the incarnation. But we're advocating that Jesus existed long before that. Right. So so in other words, when Jesus in John chapter one says Jesus tabernacled or dwelt among men, we're we're saying this was not the beginning of Jesus's existence. That's yeah, essentially man. where we're going. Yeah, that's good. Um, I've got a quote here on the guide. I can't even remember where I got it from, but this is how important the preexistence of Christ is. 
Understanding the pre-existence of Christ determines how one thinks about the theology of God and the entire realm of salvation. Now, that, that is a, a loaded quote there. In other words, the thinking upon and understanding and knowing and being convicted of the pre-existence of Christ ultimately determines how you think about God, how you think about the Trinity, and also how you think about the entire realm of soteriology or the entire realm of, uh, of salvation. Because we have a major problem if Jesus did not live in eternity past or he did not exist in eternity past. We have an issue. You, you yeah. want to speak on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you, you've you explained that well in, in, I think, connecting to the other doctrines. We've said this before, that every time we, we develop a doctrine, we have to recognize that it is part of a system. And, and, and I know that if you've been with us from the beginning, you're probably sick of me saying that, but systematic theology is just that. It's all interrelated. And so we, if, if you have a misunderstanding of the person of Christ, especially in his pre-existence, in his eternality, in his deity as part of the Trinity, if you misunderstand that, then how in the world can this non-eternal being satisfy the eternal wrath of God against an eternally holy God because of a sin uh, committed by me? Like, it all has implications. And so um, we said this from the beginning. Our doctrine of Scripture informs how we uh, interpret and how we apply things. And our doctrine of the church is going to affect our doctrine of the last things. And all of these things go together. And so that's that's why, as, as you mentioned, understanding this determines... Uh, very much how we understand God, how we understand the Trinity, how we understand salvation, because they are interconnected. Yeah, that's good, man. The details, as we said uh, two episodes ago in Christology Part 1, the details truly matter. Mm -hmm. Now, quickly, um, we're just going to run through, we're going to sprint through some objections to the preexistence of Christ. There are some ideas and some thought out there uh, that has circulated through the centuries with people trying to advocate that Jesus really didn't pre-exist. Of course, we expect that from the cults. We expect that from Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness. But there are people um, that, that would argue, um, maybe even to be Christian, that would say that Jesus does not or did not pre-exist. And we want to slap on those thoughts um, and on those books um, a red flag saying, well, th this is, this is completely unbiblical and we cannot stand for this. In, in other words, before you run through those, I'm going to, I'm going to let you kind of give that flyby um, because I think you prepared well for that. But um, in other words, what we want to, what in doing this, what we want to say is this is not necessarily a pre-assumed or understood or widely accepted thing, right? Like there are those in Christianity or at least under the umbrella who claim Christianity who might disagree with this. And so we are essentially going to make a case. And in doing that, we're demonstrating, hey, this is, there are some who would disagree and we want to, we want to show why that's wrong. Yeah, that's good. Uh, that's, uh, that brings us up to these objections here. Now, first off, objection number one is that the pre-existence of Christ is incompatible with naturalism. All that is saying is, is that there is no way that this could be possible. There is no way that this could happen like we talked about in Christology Part 1 when we were looking at heretical views of Christ, Boltmann argued that um, essentially that Christ is mythological. Um, he, he, he's some sort of a, uh, of a fantasy, um, that, it isn't, um, that, that Christ isn't literal. Um, 
And so the pre-existence of Christ can't exist in a naturalistic world or that, that, that type of worldview. Anything you want to add to that? No, man, that's good. Keep rolling. Yeah. Objection number two is that a majority of people have just misread the New Testament. In other words, the Apostle Paul, uh, the writer and author of Hebrews, um, and even the Synoptic Gospels, they really just don't teach that Jesus pre-existed. Um, and I would completely disagree w- w- with that particular view and that objection. Uh, I think there's plenty of evidence within those texts. I mean, we could think of Hebrews 1 and just right off the bat that blows this objection out of the water. But the idea is that, look, people for centuries have been misreading what the New Testament has said. People have yes. just been misreading it. <clears throat> which, which comes into as we've said before, the doctrine of hermeneutics, right? How we interpret and how we work through. And and so in establishing our interpretive method and how we're going to read the text for what it says and try to understand authorial intent and all of those things, we would be able to uh, respond to this objection by pointing to text and say, nope, this is actually, in fact, how it is to be interpreted. So uh, I think that all that plays to the the track record that we hope to have have established prior to this. Yeah, that's good. Um, On to objection number three, is that the New Testament really doesn't teach pre-existence. Instead, those texts advocate for priority. So it's diminishing one attribute of Jesus Christ and and, and in a way elevating another attribute of Christ. So look, Jesus didn't pre-exist. That's not what the New Testament is really teaching. Rather, those texts, like John 1, verses 1 through 3, it's not talking about pre-existence. It's just showing the priority of Jesus. Like, Jesus is a big deal, but he just didn't exist before the creation of the world, is what that objection mm-hmm. is advocating for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, a, <clears throat> what, what, about, uh, what about the last one you have listed here? This I love the way you titled this. Yeah, willful ignorance. Mm-hmm. Basically, look, I know this is what the New Testament says, but I just don't agree with it, right? right? <laughs> I know that's what it says, but I just don't like it. Well, that and I think you, you nailed it right there at the end. I, I don't agree with it because I don't like it, and mainly because somebody may not like the implications of it and the eternal deity of Christ pre-existing will lend to the understanding of how salvation must occur, uh, nece- the necessity of repentance, the understanding, all of those things. And so there is a a group of people who just flat out will reject it because they don't like the implications. Right, right. Well, as we always do on the Reformed Informants podcast, we want to develop a biblical argument and then move into a historical argument. So uh, we're going to kick off our biblical argument um, by looking at uh, just a handful of Old Testament prophecies, some Old Testament prophecies. So even before the time of Jesus, even before the Incarnation, even before the written New Testament and the New Testament church, there were texts in the Old Testament that clearly laid out uh, the, the, the pre-existence of Jesus. Yeah, let me make a plug real quick before we walk through these, too, to just remind us of progressive revelation, right? The idea that uh, as as God continued to reveal and unfold his plan, um, I, I think we've said before that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so as we continue, the prophets are foretelling and also foretelling the message of uh, that God has given to his people. 
But as we get into the New Testament and we see the fullness of that revelation that has been completed in Christ, as the author of Hebrews says, and then the closing of the canon, we now have God's word revealed to us. We can look back on these texts and clearly see what these texts were uh, pointing toward. And so uh, at the time of their writing, this may have been kind of fuzzy. It may have been like a mountain down the road. We just don't know how far it is. We don't know what, what's really there. But as we now have the lenses to be able to understand these things. So you have prophecies like the one in Micah chapter 5, uh, which says, But as for you, Bethlehem, too, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forths are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So, Coming from Bethlehem, which we now know this is a reference to Christ, uh, among the clans of Judah, out of you will come uh, a ruler in Israel. Well, that king is the king of kings. It's Christ himself, and his going forth are from long ago. His reign is from the days of eternity. So he has existed forever. He is the eternal king from eternity past. Now, would Micah have known the full implications of this as he wrote it? Probably not. But progressive revelation allows us to understand this is a reference to the second person of the Trinity. Man, it's heating up over there in Kentucky, man. <sighs> oh, it's, AC, it's, AC's it's, still it's, working in here, so it's okay. It's heating up. Yeah, Micah 5.2. Uh, thanks for uh, discussing that prophecy there. It's it's one that is um, is used... Uh, by the New Testament writers, as you said, uh, mm -hmm. throughout progressive revelation to identify that prophecy as being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, another prophecy, a well-known one, probably a little more recognizable than Micah 5.2, uh, would be Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Uh, most of the time this scripture is read or discussed in, in, in the church would be around the holiday, uh, the Christmas season, uh, because verse six begins by saying for a child will be born to us a son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders now the, the verse goes on and this is talking about jesus and his name will be called wonderful counselor mighty god eternal father and prince of peace and um you can clearly see here that we have multiple attributes that are attributed uh, to God the Father, but in this prophetic passage, the, these attributes are also true of this child that will be born, of this son that will be given to the nation of Israel. And, and notice again at the end of verse 6, he's called eternal. He's called eternal. So, so yeah. again, it's not a reading into or onto the text. This isn't uh, eisegesis here. Uh, mm -hmm. This is taking the text literally as Isaiah is writing, and we come to the conclusion that this child that will be born is eternal. Now, again, there's mystery in that. We understand that. There's mystery like you talked about with Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and, and this passage isn't really fully unveiled and fully um, worked out until uh, the completed revelation. Yeah. 
And, and one of the more fascinating facts, you could also make a theological argument from this very verse itself, because what's really interesting is how the language here speaks to all three persons of the Trinity. Uh, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Well, the Holy Spirit is called the Counselor um, in, in the book of John. We talk about the Eternal Father and Jesus himself is the Prince of Peace. And so you've got all three persons of the Trinity represented here. Well, if God the Father is eternal, God the Son is eternal, God the Spirit is eternal, we have a pre-existence of Christ because there is a triune existence uh, of one essence, one being in three persons. And so uh, not only do you have the biblical text here, but you have the theological component as well, which says because Jesus is a person of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, his preexistence then is included in that because of uh, the nature of the triune God. And I just think that's really fascinating the way that that's uh, intertwined there in that verse. Um, just Isaiah probably didn't understand the fullness of that. The the, the full deity uh, of the Son and the Spirit had not been revealed yet, but we can see that uh, through the lens of the New Testament. Yeah, that's a great point, TJ. And we've been advocating for that on the podcast now since we started, that all of Revelation is absolutely critical to building a systematic theology. theology. You know, 2 Timothy 3.16, we've quoted often, all Scripture is God-breathed. You can't just pick and choose what Revelation and what Scripture uh, you want to use and exclude uh, the rest. It, it is all of Scripture. It is Genesis to Revelation um, that must be used uh, in, in building a systematic, and we're trying to implement that practically speaking here, as we build the pre-existence of, of Jesus. Yeah, man, that's good. That's good. What, where else, where else can we go in the old Testament? Any, any other texts come to mind? Yeah, we can go to Psalm 110 verse one. Um, this is quoted, I think, I think in all three synoptics, okay. Matthew, Mark and Luke. But if you remember in the uh, gospel narrative when the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders are attempting to uh, trip Jesus up. They're asking him questions, and then, of course, he answers those questions in ways that they didn't see coming. And, you know, they were trying to catch him in, in fault and catch him sinning, um, you know, to find any reason to arrest him and put him on trial. But after they hurl three different questions at him, Jesus comes back with one question, and basically he says in Matthew 22, verse uh, 42, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Well, Jesus here is referring back to Psalm 110. When you've got this inner Trinitarian talk, uh, the mm -hmm. Lord says to my Lord in Psalm 110, verse 1. So here we have a distinction between God the Father and mm -hmm. God the Son, both of them called Lord. That's man. That's a good distinction. That's a that's a good um, it's a good text. It's not one that I would have thought to go to, and I'm thankful that you put that on here to to unpack that and mention that. And uh, and, and there are others. There are other places we could go in the Old Testament. Uh, of course, we could. Uh, using the New Testament, we can go all the way back to Genesis and even talk about before the creation itself. Um, but I do think that it's important for us to realize and to recognize that this is not a new idea or a new concept when we get to these New Testament passages. Even though the New Testament passages bring clarity to the Old Testament, they don't bring something new. They just allow us to understand it a little bit better. 
Yeah, man, that's good. So moving into the New Testament, uh, what we want to unfold here is this idea of God the Father sending Jesus. God the Father sending Jesus. So what's implied here is that Jesus was with God. Well, with God when? In eternity past is what we've been arguing for. So um, there are multiple references that that uh, unpack this idea of God sending Jesus. Uh, you can even think of John uh, 3.16 and, and verse 17, you can include in that as well, uh, that God gave or that God sent His only Son. And then verse 17, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. So even in uh, the opening portions, the opening chapters of the Gospel of John, and you see this play out more in John's Gospel, again, this idea that God is sending Jesus forth. God is sending, He's sending, He's sending. Yeah, that's that idea, John, is, is very prevalent. Um, that idea is very prevalent in the writings of John. Uh, you mentioned of course, John three sixteen and seventeen, John five twenty four. Um, he echoes the same thing. He talks about him who sent me, uh, referencing the Father. First John chapter four verse nine says, "By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world." And there's a there's an eternality to this because the plan, as we've discussed previously on our episode on the divine decrees, the plan for God to send the Son was not a reaction. Right to the world, it wasn't a um, a misstep, and the and and so um, Adam messed up, and now God's got to fix it. And what's he going to do? And he's like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'll just think of something. Oh, why don't I just create the second person and send it? Like, no, this was we've discussed this already. This was a the plan from the beginning was to send the Son, and so the sending or the going forth from the Father. Uh, indicates a pre-existence and an eternality uh, just by his own nature. Uh, Luke chapter 10 says the same thing. Um, he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. And so Jesus is frequently referencing this um, throughout the Gospels. It's just, it's it's a very repeated theme. Um, and it, it, in and of itself, it argues and, and suggests that Jesus was eternally with the one who sent him. Yeah, I, I like what you said about the eternal plan of God. And I think that that is implied here uh, to some degree, even in the verses that we talked about from John 3 and John, and John 5, Jesus has, and notice he is consciously aware of being yes. sent. This yes. is Jesus doing the talking here. Yeah. It, it isn't as if, you know, Jesus all of a sudden came to be in the womb of Mary, and then as he's growing up, he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait, wait a minute here. Mm -hmm. Whoa, 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 whoa! You know, yeah. it's not, it's not I, I, like I'm, Jason, like like Jason Bourne, right? Like he's trying to figure out why he's <laughs> why he's there. What he's like that's that's good, man. That's that's good. He 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 knows. Keep going with that. Sorry to cut you off. Well, I can't think. I can't stop thinking about Jason Bourne now. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean that that is that is a good illustration, minus all the action, except for Jesus, you know, tossing and turning tables in the temple. <laughs> yes. Sorry, man. I don't know why. I just I just pictured. Jason Bourne, like waking up from his slumber and trying to figure out uh -huh. what's going on. Um, no, but 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 I like the point that we're going for here is that Jesus was he, he was aware of the divine plan and the rescue mission that he was sent on. This isn't something that he was awakened to or something that had to be told to him 
uh, by his family or by his friends or, you know, a message passed along from the disciples. Mm -hmm. Uh, This whole idea of Jesus being sent, again, was planned and orchestrated within the triune God in eternity past. And Jesus is now playing out that role in the incarnation, which we'll discuss later on in Christology. Yes, yes, and I love what you said there, man. Like this was this was established within the triune God. So Jesus was a part of this covenant of redemption, uh, as we've discussed before, and we will definitely unpack later down the road <laughs> when we get to soteriology. But but Jesus, along with God the Father and God the Spirit. Um, there was a, the determination that he would go. And so, yes, the father sent, but the son went willingly because the father had sent him and they had the same will in order to accomplish that which he came to accomplish. And we'll get to that also. Um, but I think this transitions as well to talk not only about the fact that Jesus was sent, that God sent him, so thereby uh, suggesting that he was eternally with God, but also Jesus makes these direct claims about his own eternality, about his own deity, about his own uh, equality with God the Father. And this is especially prominent in the Gospel of John. Uh, So the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, kind of have a different uh, goal, aim, purpose, uh, structure. The Gospel of John is different and unique, and there's a, there's those I am statements in John, right? And John is very emphatic in the way he he presents Jesus here, and and you see this over and over again. In John uh, chapter five, uh, for this reason, in verse sixteen, John writes, "For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, so he was causing trouble, and the Jews hated him." But he answered, Jesus responds, and says. My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this is the reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but more importantly, he was calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. That That was the problem. Like, there were other people who broke the Sabbath, but Jesus broke the Sabbath and said, yeah, it's my Sabbath because it's my father's Sabbath. And they didn't like that uh, because he was equating himself with God. He was saying, I am God. Um, John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the father are one. He has I am statements all through uh, the gospel of John. Yeah, man. I mean, I guess we should suggest that our listeners go read the gospel of John. It's just, (laughs) it'd be easier than it'd be easier than us reading it to them. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's just jam packed loaded with lines of evidence um, from multiple sources. That's what I love about the John five passage that you went to TJ, because you know, Jesus is saying that he is working on the Sabbath. So Jesus is claiming to do the same work that God is doing on the Sabbath. Okay, so there's one uh, line of evidence. But then in verse 18, as you also read, is that people start losing their minds now and want to kill him. And they want to kill him because they understand that he just made the claim uh, to be God. He's calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Like, let's kill this guy because of the claims that he's making. So the evidence is there. Uh, like you said, from Jesus, but it's, it, the evidence is also there in, in the unbeliever's reaction, mm-hmm. which which I love about the Gospels, man. The Gospels are never afraid to show the reaction of other people. Um, yeah, you mentioned John 10.30. You mentioned the I Am statements. Uh, another uh, a great line of evidence from the Gospel of John would be verse 9, uh, when Jesus says, 
he who has seen me has seen the Father. So if you have a correct understanding of who Jesus is, then you have a correct understanding of who God is because Jesus is God. Mm-hmm. And so all of this is building on our uh, claims that Jesus was pre-existing. Um, yeah. If he is indeed God, then he was in existence before Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Right. And that's, you, you mentioned there John 14 uh, with verse 9. I also love uh, John chapter 8 when Jesus makes that emphatic statement before Abraham was, I am. Like that, that's, like there's an eternality there that is just um, a slap in the face to all those people listening. Like you have no idea who you're talking to. You're talking to the eternal son of God. Um, and, and that eternality is emphasized in his reference all the way back right to Genesis chapter 3 when God tells Moses that I am who I am and he mm-hmm. says before Abraham was I am and he's claiming the same eternality that God the Father claims in Genesis in Exodus chapter 3 and in saying before Abraham was he's suggesting that Abraham had a affinitude right like that Abraham had a a particular existence he existed in a a window of time in history. He says, before Abraham was, he doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. I have existed. I continue to exist. I will exist. And there's there's such power in that simple English phrase, I am. And Jesus uh, was not shy about bringing that out. Yeah, one of my favorite references, and I think one of the most definitive statements that you will find uh, in the New Testament is uh, John 17, 5, Jesus in the uh, high priestly prayer, he's praying to God, and you know he, he says, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. Mm. Now, I know that we were talking about objections back at the early part of this episode, right? but it cannot, it cannot get any more clear than that. That is coming from the lips of Jesus. Glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. I mean, yeah. <laughs> on, on we could do an entire episode on that verse alone. It is jam-packed with truth from Jesus' own lips that he was in glory with God before the foundation of the world. We might as well wrap up this episode. Man. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting fired up. I'm getting fired up. Uh, we got we got a couple more things to get to though. So before you before you try to bounce off on me, we got a couple other um, arguments or, or verses to reference. And um, not only do we have these claims uh, from Jesus Himself, but we also have other uh, references to. Um, this pre-existence of Christ. And these are significant. I, I remember uh, early on in seminary uh, learning from one of my professors, my, one of my, my preaching professor, he nailed this into us. He said, what are the four most significant Christological passages in the New Testament? And I just remember staring back at him with the rest of our classmates, just like, I don't know what, he's like, man, John chapter one, Hebrews chapter one, uh, Colossians chapter one, Philippians chapter two. If you can master those four texts, you will learn who Jesus is. And of course, we've been all over the place. We've been looking at other passages that doesn't give us uh, everything, right? We, we need the full counsel of God on this. But but those passages are so powerful. We've already referenced a couple of them. But John chapter one, in, in particular, John says, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with." God, eternality, pre-existence, um, Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, not 
to be argued right there. Like that, that is straightforward. Uh, we'll, we'll probably end up having to do Lance. I just, I just sense it. We're going to have to come back and do a full episode on, on John one, one to three. Uh, dealing, yeah, man, we, we, <laughs> I'm foretelling here. Uh, we're going to have to get back into that because it's just so good uh, to, to think about those things and to consider the, the depth of, of doctrine that, that are packed into those very simple Greek words. I know you're you're more of a Greek scholar than I am now. Uh, you're 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 crushing it in the Greek world. No, so you no. you you know what that says though. Like it's it's very straightforward and intentional, but it's so powerful. Um, and then I I, I can't help but I, I got to mention this too. Colossians chapter one. Um, I actually got to preach a sermon. One of my first sermons I preached no doubt inadequately on this passage, but on the, uh, the, the preeminence of Christ in Colossians chapter one, it says, uh, Paul writes that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the preeminent one over all creation for by him, all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he goes on and on talking about the, the greatness and the preeminence and the, the 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 majesty of Christ and in doing this though Paul is not only implicitly but explicitly stating that Jesus is eternal and has pre-existed before as you mentioned earlier from John 17:5 before the foundations of the earth yeah man that colossians well you, you good and get you a drink yeah yeah I'm good I'm good some protein um yeah the, the colossians 1 passage that, that you just went through there yeah, I mean that that is an episode uh, in it and of itself. Um, you know, verse fifteen, he's the image of the invisible God, so that there's a claim directly that Jesus is God. Uh, verse sixteen, he uh, created. Right. Well, in, in order to create, you have to be around before creation. Right. Um, right. It, it goes on uh, to say in verse seventeen, he is before all things. Um, I mean, again, you know, we said at the beginning of this episode that we wanted to do theology. You know, even even reading John 1, uh, Colossians 1 here, nothing is being imposed on those texts. You, you can open up your Bibles now and, and just look at those passages without any preconceived notions or presuppositions. And if you read those straightforward, take those passages literally that's exactly what Paul's trying to get across when he writes Colossians chapter 1. I'm trying to show you that this Jesus is the Christ and that this Christ is God. Mm. Um, man, I, I wish we had TJ's sermon where we could play some clips of that right now. I, <laughs> I can't even imagine. What year was that? You, you could imagine. Yeah, it was uh, 2015. Um, I was fresh out of seminary and um, yeah, it was, it was fine. It's fine. I still had hair, no beard, so no power. <laughs> well, then we reject that. Then you're not walking <laughs> in the spirit. Oh yeah, that's too good. Um, man, I think I think that we've adequately considered those texts, um, and, and I hope that for those listening, none of that was new to you. But I hope that 
if you were pressed on this, you would be able to do the same thing and say, hey, where can we go to defend this claim that Jesus is eternal um, and that that he has existed before the foundations of the world, rather than just assuming, because that's what we learned in Sunday school. Uh, I think that that's how many of us might approach this question. So uh, this has been such a good, fresh reminder for me to just consider the depths of these passages, which oftentimes, man, we read these things, and because we kind of intuitively believe them and know them we just gloss over that stuff sometimes like man this is powerful stuff and it's it's um it's it's supernatural stuff right like it's miraculous stuff and we we can't miss that um but let me let me kind of shift us into the last kind of line of argumentation so so when we consider the New Testament, we we discussed this um, especially last time. We talked about the all these distortions uh, and misrepresentations of Christ, and we talked. I, I believe it was the Paul Washer quote, right, that talked about how some uh, well-meaning, well-intentioned Christians um, left no room for mystery, and so you had these heresies and these distortions and these uh, problems with Christ. Uh, the person of Christ and how the church understood um, the person of Christ. And so what began to happen was, even though the text of Scripture is authoritative, the text of Scripture is the only uh, standard of truth, there began to be councils that would meet. Could you kind of, in a very brief way, summarize what a council was and what that looked like and what the purpose of them was? Yeah, that, that was a good intro, talking about uh, heretical views of Christ or even even other issues uh, that would come about throughout the centuries. So you would have uh, the major and influential true Christian church leaders that would uh, get together, search the scriptures like the Bereans, and they would seek to identify the scriptures teaching mm-hmm. In refute or uh, to refute rather uh, th- those false teachings and sometimes major false teachings and heresies that were circulating in the ancient world, you know. So we talked about before on on the podcast the Nicene Creed, um, the Chalcedonian Creed. We're talking about uh, fourth and fifth century creeds that were responses to heretical views of Jesus. Uh, people were, were tampering with the hypostatic union. Um, there were some issues concerning the Holy Spirit, things of that nature. So you would have people that would rise up and they would formulate these creeds. They would formulate these confessions and, and these doctrines as the official stance of uh, the true church of God. I have no idea if that's where you wanted me to go with that, but I'm going to kick I, it back to you. I don't know if I don't know if that's where I wanted you to go with that either, but I appreciated it, so <laughs> uh, we're we're sticking with it. Uh, no, I'm in all seriousness, though, man. Like that's that's what I want us to see, and I'm really appreciative of of how you kind of outlined that for us. But I want to what I want us to see is that that Christians in these early centuries took seriously the conversation that we're having today, and. Um, they wrote. They took the time to, with intentionality and with uh, very much, with a lot of specificity, um, specific words to capture the essence of the doctrines that we're espousing today. And so we have those in written format, in written form today, and they are in and of themselves not authoritative, right? The creeds don't. That's a good tell point. Them. 
you know, the creeds don't tell us exactly what we must believe, but what the creeds do tell us is how the early church understood. And these creeds, by the way, are ecumenical creeds. These are the ones that the whole church, this is not like the Presbyterians or the Baptist or the uh, Lutherans, like this is before the denominations of the, the the later centuries. This is what the church agreed upon to said, this is what the scripture says, and we are going to uh, base our understanding on the scripture. So the authority is in the text of scripture, but these are, uh, these are creeds which espouse kind of in the same ways that we do today with confessions and creeds. These are our interpretations of them. Um, does that, does that make sense? Did I explain that adequately? Oh yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the record button's on, so we'll just have to go with just it. Just leave it, I guess, and just deal with the hate mail when it comes in. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, what well, as we, as we've kind of prefaced this, let, let's look at a couple of the creeds. Uh, so you mentioned the Nicene Creed. So this was in 325 AD, a very significant, uh, the, the first of the major creeds that came out uh, in, in a formal manner. But the language of this creed speaks of uh, the belief in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. So there's an eternality that is attached to the Son of God. Now it goes on to right. uh, explain in great detail many of the other uh, discussions that we will have here um, in future episodes, but that's where I would focus is that the uh, person of Jesus Christ existed before all ages, before time began. Yeah, that's good. Go back, Google Nicene Creed, read it, and uh, you'll you'll see... Uh, You'll see all the text, not just some of the bits and pieces that we're that we're pulling out here. Yes, yes. Uh, the Athanasius, good. yeah, the Athanasius Creed uh, from the fifth century. It says, uh, "But the divinity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is one; their glory equal; their majesty co-eternal, mm. co-eternal." So again. You know, you've got the fifth century church that's uh, rising up and they are affirming uh, that Jesus Christ is eternal, which is, you know, what we've been uh, advocating for on this episode. Uh, TJ, you went to the Chalcedonian Creed? Yeah, man. Chalcedonian Creed, 451 AD, kind of the same ballpark as the Athanasius Creed there, uh, but which references the same Son. This is the, the language of the Chalcedonian Creed. Uh, one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, so fully God, fully man, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with us according to the manhood and all things likened to us without sin begotten before all ages of the father according to the godhead so there's a there's a there's an exposition of who jesus is and there's this exposition of his uh deity and his humanity which we are going to get to in episodes to come uh hopefully the next two episodes uh but at the end of it all speaking of his being begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead. So, in other words, eternally equal with God. That's yeah, I mean, man. that's the summary. Yeah, that's good. Uh, the Westminster Confession in 1646, chapter two, section three says, "In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and then lastly, here it says, and eternity." 
So the Westminster Confession is spot on with what Scripture teaches and what the church has advocated for century after century. I'm going to kick it back to you for the 1689, man. That's yours. Yeah. Yeah, sixteen eighty nine. I've got I've got several copies of that on my desk behind me. I'm a big big fan of the Second London Baptist Confession. If you haven't read that, it's lengthy and it's worth every minute of your time reading it. But uh, in the sixteen eighty nine, uh, the these men uh, who who used the Westminster in their formulation of this of this uh, confession, they wrote in this divine divine and infinite being there are three subsistences the father the word or son and the holy spirit of one substance power and eternity each having the whole divine essence yet the essence undivided so again uh, using language from the Westminster, but capturing, as we've discussed in the Trinity, which is, I think, uh, really where we want to go next, Lance, and talking about the significance of the eternality of Christ and the relationship of that with the triune God. So in other words, this is not uh, God the Father is eternal and God the Son is some lesser version that also happens to be eternal. Uh, the eternality of Christ is directly connected, as we've seen here in these confessions uh, that we just looked at here from the 17th century. But the eternality of the Son, the pre-existence of the Son, is directly connected with the Trinity, yet still the person of Christ is distinct from the persons of the Father and the Spirit. So where do we go in trying to unpack that and also kind of put a bow on this thought? Yeah, well, first, uh, let, let's plug a previous episode that we did um, last year in Theology Proper. We did an entire episode on the Trinity uh, where we unpacked this idea of Christ being eternally God, however, distinct from God, not divided, but distinct from God. We talked about that briefly. Uh, again, we're just going to mention it here, and that will probably overlap in some of the upcoming episodes that we're doing on Christology. But as TJ had already said, look, we want to emphasize that Jesus is God and that he existed eternally uh, with God. However, we're talking about God the Son, not God the Father, and not God the Spirit. All three within the true on God are eternally God, yet all three are distinguished. All three are distinct. And for our purposes here, we are advocating that, yes, Jesus Christ is fully God. However, he is a distinct person and member of the Trinity. Right. In other words, we would reject the notion that Jesus is eternal, but the same as God the Father. We, we, yes, he's eternal. Yes, he shares the attributes of God. Yes, he uh, coexists with the Father. Yes, he sit, he came from the Father, but he is not equal to the Father in terms of his personhood. Rather, he's only equal in terms of his essence or his being. In other words, as you mentioned, Lance, that's episode 16. Can you believe that? Episode 16, that's how long ago it's been. But we talked about the Trinity, and we talked about one essence, one being, one substance, but three persons or three sub-substances, uh, as others have said. And to say that Jesus is distinct, yet equal. He's eternal, shares the attributes of God, yet, as we've described before, he's not the same as the person of the Father or the person of the Spirit. Remember we talked uh, last week about that heresy uh, known as modalism uh, and that that picture of 
of Clark Kent going into the phone booth and coming out as Superman, like that God the Father uh, goes into the phone booth and comes out as God the Son. Like that's we are rejecting that theological position. We are saying he is eternal, he pre-exists, but he is distinct from the Father and the Spirit. Yeah, that's good. And of course, we're building that from uh, multiple texts in the New Testament, that this isn't just found in one obscure passage, but some of the passages that we have mentioned already on on, uh, on this episode, we can go right back to uh, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. So here, you've got, uh, in just a few words, John advocating for uh, Jesus being equal to God, yet being distinct from God. And again, that's not a difficult text to understand. It mm-hmm. is a difficult text or text to fully grasp, but as far as the Good. language is concerned, uh, it, it could not be more straightforward. And that's a good distinction right there. It's, it's easy to understand, difficult to comprehend, uh, difficult to wrap your mind around, but yet still simple in its presentation. Uh, we, we've already talked about Colossians chapter 1, uh, talking about the distinction there between God the Father and God the Son. Uh, we've seen it in Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, God the Father has spoken to us in his Son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the world. And he is the radiance, verse 3 says, of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. Uh, When he had made the purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. The, the, The preeminence, as Colossians 1 talks about, but this excellency of Christ uh, is highlighted here in Hebrews chapter 1. He's the radiance of the glory of the Father. He's the exact representation of his nature, and yet he's distinct. Uh, the, the Father made the world through the Son, and he's been appointed the heir of all things, and uh, he upholds the world, the Son does, by the word of his power. And so there's a distinction that is made here between the Father and the Son. Yeah, man. Gosh. Look, your homework, listeners, read all the Gospel of John. Read, read Hebrews read 1. Your read your Bible. One. Um, but as we finish up this point, uh, I do think there are some underrated verses and some overlooked verses that make this point of distinction uh, between the Father and the Son in the book of Revelation. If you go to Revelation chapter 21, verse 22... Uh, The text says, but I saw no temple in it. This is talking about the new heaven and the new earth. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So we've got a distinction between God the Father and God the Son in Revelation 21, 22. If you go down to Revelation 22, um, verse 3, it says, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. Okay, so you've got this distinction between the two, even discussed in the new heaven and the new earth from the book of Revelation. So again, as we have advocated on the Reformed informants from the beginning, all of Scripture unfolds the triune God, and then 
our case for these episodes, we're trying to come to a biblical understanding of Jesus, and you have to apply all of Revelation to get there. Man, that's that's so good. I don't have anything else to add. Is there anything else we need to unpack before we before we jump to the initiative? I need to unpack more gear from the mailbox. Ah, I don't know why I put that on a tee for you like that. That was not scripted, by the way, for those of you who are wondering. That was not scripted. Um, okay, initiative, man. Takeaway for, to, for today. After having this conversation, um, I, I think it's just so important that we recognize uh, the value and the significance of an eternal uh, Savior. And we're gonna uh, we're gonna unpack uh, and discuss the implications of this down the road, especially as we get into soteriology and the work of Christ and uh, redemption and and uh, all of those things. We, we've got so much to get to, and that's okay. We can take our time getting there, but but there's just such a significance that we can't overlook, but that's so easy to miss because it's either assumed or we've just been told that we've just been taught that and you know mom and dad told us or or pastor mentions it in the sermon but but what does the bible say and the bible teaches this thing and this is significant uh and, and so i i don't want us to gloss over it i'm so thankful that you convinced me even though i didn't want to to do this episode no i'm kidding <laughs> uh no i'm so thankful that we did this because this was a good reminder to me that this is worth examining uh without just kind of saying oh yeah jesus is eternal Jesus preexisted. Well, yes, but let's really think about that. That's a big deal. Uh, thinking upon the preexistence of Jesus and his eternality is comforting because, as uh, we have discussed on this episode, Jesus didn't just halfway through his incarnation come to an awareness of this divine plan. And he's mm. partaken in this divine plan since the beginning. He came to the cross to fulfill part of the plan, and then he is returning to fulfill all of the redemptive plan. Mm. And his preexistence is just one part of that. Mm. And I'm comforted in the fact uh, that this is the Jesus uh, that we serve and that we worship uh, day in and day out. Mm. Amen. Amen, dude. That's... That's that's a good conversation, good talk, and and I'm looking forward, man, to the future episodes that are up up in front of us as we unpack this glorious doctrine of Jesus Christ. Uh, listen, if you're not doing so already, I have no I have no words for you, but make sure you <laughs> subscribe to our podcast. Get on iTunes, click that little subscribe button, give us a five star rating. I know you listen every week. Just do that. Uh, you can also do that on our YouTube channel if you prefer that. Uh, like us on Facebook, uh, Reformed Informants. Come to our social media on, on Instagram, Twitter. We're, on, we're there at our underscore informants. And I've, we've mentioned this before. Find links to all of our social media platforms, all our previous episodes. And of course, the gear can all be found at our website at www.themajestiesmen.com slash Reformed Informants. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics of discussion, feel free to email us at reformedinformants at gmail.com.